welcome to Careers in Discovery, where you'll meet scientists who've forged outstanding careers in biotech and hear about what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by Singular, building brilliant biotechs. Jenny Barnett is the CEO of Monument Therapeutics, a biotech company using precision medicine approaches to develop new treatments for psychiatric and neurological conditions, and the Chief Scientific Officer of Five Lives, a digital therapeutics business focused on reducing dementia risk. Jenny joined us on Careers in Discovery to discuss her career so far, why academia wasn't for her, how digital biomarkers can improve clinical trial performance, and the things she had to learn to become an effective CEO. This week on Careers in Discovery, I'm absolutely delighted to be with Jenny Barnett of Monument Therapeutics. Jenny, welcome to the show. Very much. Good to see you. Um, So Jenny, I I always start by talking a little bit about the work you're doing now and the projects you're involved in and give people a bit of an introduction. So to start with, can you tell us a bit about Monument and a bit about your work and, and what's going on there currently? Absolutely. So Monument Therapeutics is a new development company. We're neuroscience specialists um, and we set it up uh, two years ago and during the COVID era, era and then um, raised the funds to uh, sort of independently two years ago. Mm. Of our work is to find um, overcome a problem that's been a real issue for neuroscience, so psychiatry and neurology in general, which is that um, drugs that look good in the early stages of clinical trials often then fail to make it through and become available to patients. And we believe that a lot of that is to do with um, the the way that we define patient populations. Mm. We're trying to do something better than the standard, um, and we hope that that will um, help our own drugs get to market and also demonstrate to people that we um, learn lessons from areas like oncology, where a personalised approach to medicine has um, really helped with development. Um, and uh, we think that there's the, the to learn these lessons and, and make neuroscience the new oncology. Yes, I see. I see. And this sort of idea of precision medicine is a ter- it's a term that gets used to cover a lot of different uh, activities or different approaches, right? You're particularly using it from a point of view of patient selection and working that back to how you then discover and develop the drugs. Is that correct? Exactly. So if you think about pushing edge in psychiatry at the moment, if you go to your GP and say that you're having problems with mood and you're feeling really sad, um, there's not a lot of testing goes on there. They're reliant on how you describe your symptoms. Um, And what we think is that in reality, depression and most psychiatric disorders aren't one single disease. So you and I might both have low mood, but we might have it for totally different biological reasons. Um, so even in, in areas where there are lots of drugs available, and there's many treatments for depression, for example, um, the same drug wouldn't work on both you and I because we have different genes and, and different mm-hmm. causes. So what we're trying to do with Monument is um, use ways of actually measuring brain function, non-invasive, so we're not using um, scanners or anything yes. like that. We're essentially having people complete um, a series of computer games but that have been developed over a long period of time. So then each of those things is the most specific process in the brain. 
from that, we can find groups of patients who have similar looking brains, similar um, abnormalities in brain processes. Um, and we're using that, uh, that approach to, as you say, select homogenous groups of patients and then apply drugs that we think should act on that brain process. Um, so each of our programs has a, a digital biomarker that defines the patient group and then the drug that we hope is going to effectively treat that group um, throughout the clinical trials and eventually the biomarker will be there for your doctor to uh, test in clinic. Does it look like you're going to respond well to this drug? Let's do a test and, and find that out. Yeah, interesting. And I, I suppose, you know, the immediate the immediate reaction might be, I suppose, why would you narrow your patient population further? But then when you calculate that against 90 plus percent failure rate and, and these sorts of things, I suppose there's a there's a balancing out there to narrow it down enough that you get a better chance of success, but not so far that it's successful one person. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. We you know we I've worked um, with great scientists in many pharmaceutical companies and they all teach, you know, everybody understands that we need better um, neuroscience. Um, but as you say, there's a real commercial drive for mm. it be good if we could develop a drug that works for everybody, surely that will, or that we could at least prescribe to everybody, surely that would be better. Um, so that that's always been the the commercial push for more precision medicine approaches. But then I, you know, I, I always go to cancer and say cancer drugs only started working once we realized that we had right. to actually measure what was going on in the tumor and match this appropriately and and then you know how successful oncology has been ever since and yes. i think we're, we're just on the cusp of that now of winning that argument in neuroscience people do believe it and as you say the very high rates of neuroscience drug failure that have happened um uh, historically uh, give a little bit of impetus to actually try and do something a bit different mm. now and, and is there a particular approach that you're taking to it in terms of obviously there's been big advances in bioinformatic analysis of different types of omics data, which have helped with precision medicine and, um, you know, lots of different things around sequencing that have that have moved the field forward. Is there, are there particular technologies or, or approaches you're employing that you can talk about? <laughs> no, no, that's, it's a really good question. So uh, there are a few companies out there and we all have different approaches slightly different technologies so there are companies um, that use uh, multi-omic approaches as uh, as you're describing um, there are companies that use things like brain brain scanning brain imaging um, uh, EEG which is that bath pack that you wear and there's lots of ways of measuring brain function and we're all really trying to measure the same basic biology the approach that we use with these things that look like computer games yes um, really has two advantages. The first is that um, these have been around for quite a long time. So uh, Cambridge Cognitive Monument spun out of um, has been using these technology for about 20 years as the endpoints in clinical trials. So to look at what a drug has in the brain. Mm -hmm. So they're really well validated. There's about 3,000 publications that have used them, um, as well as lots of clinical trials for new drugs and new drug mechanisms. So we really know everything about from this menu of biomarkers we know an awful lot about their different sensitivities in patient groups and also in drugs it's what allows us to match the biomarker with the drug for for our new programs the other thing that's really useful about them is that they're super scalable so they take right. five minutes ten minutes to run you can run on a mobile phone on a computer you know anything that's um attached to the internet and that means that from the point of view of running multinational trials 
um, and ultimately from the point of view of, of using these things in real medicine, real, real world practice, it's going to be a lot easier to scale up than something that involves, you know, specialist equipment like a like a brain scanner or something like that. So I, I think there's there's lots of ways that one could try and set these brain functions. We, we just um, like the, the way that our technology is kind of quick and easy and 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 um, makes it possible to do this at, at scale. Yes, I see. It's interesting. I suppose the 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 rise of smartphones has really made that scalability greater, right? Because I, I remember years and years ago, I can't even remember who I was going to see, but I remember going to see a client and I don't know if Cambridge Cognition, maybe we're in the same building or something, but there was a there was a computer terminal where Cambridge Cognition tests were set up. Uh, and, right. and but it, but it was a you know a desktop hardwired computer system I, I guess you know those restrictions of course have all gone now and it's much easier for people to to get involved in this the original CanTab technology which so games running on a touch screen essentially um they were originally developed in, in the department of pharmacology and uh in in the university of cambridge and the reason they were on the touch screen and, and I'm talking about the 1980s. So touchscreen mm. computers were like really well. Yes. New. But they're on a touchscreen um, as opposed to ways that we often measure brain function in humans that involves words and, mm. and moving pencil across paper and that and this kind of thing. Um, so the touchscreen allowed you to do the exact same test, not only in your healthy volunteers and in your patients, but also earlier in drug development in rodents and in monkeys. Okay. So there are still... Um, scientific labs out there that are running the same test that we're using in patients yeah. to help you know, develop drugs being used in early stage with um, uh, you know, in boxes with a touchscreen computer at the front, tapping away, doing the exact same assay. So as the premise was, as we move through stage drug development, lots of things about the brain that changes that make it difficult to use animal data to how a human will respond. If we can at least be measuring exactly the same thing in exactly mm. the same way as we move across species, then that's kind of one, you know, one one less problem to deal with. But yeah, in the nineteen eighties, touchscreens were rare, and uh, and now, of course, we will probably have one on our pocket yes. and some of us have one on our wrist, and you know, it's it's really touching um, data um, a whole lot easier. No, absolutely, absolutely, and and so you spend most of your time with monuments and, and focusing on on the the therapeutic side of things um but you're also involved in an organization called five lives can you tell us a little bit about that a little bit about that yeah absolutely so five lives is um it's really to set um population level brain health not through drugs as we're doing at monuments but by looking at um how lifestyle can be used to protect particularly against dementia so it's not really well known by most people, but dementia, things like Alzheimer's disease, about as um, you, you can prevent it to about the same extent that you can prevent something like a heart attack. So right. somewhere around 40% of dementia is thought to be driven by lifestyle factors that are potentially modifiable. And actually, they're the same lifestyle factors that we should be doing because of um cardiac risk and cancer risk and all those kinds of things so it's you know make sure you're you're getting plenty of physical activity um uh, it's a good diet don't smoke don't drink too much all, all these kinds of things but there are a few that are um, relatively specific to the brain so social activity is really important okay. um 
things like anything that reduces your social activity. So if you start to have hearing loss in your old age, it's really important to get a, get a hearing aid, get that remediated. Mm. Um, and that's thought to be because if you stimulating your brain because you're getting less uh, less conversational action um, that's bad for your brain. Um, we know that there's also a bit of active in your old age. Um, whether that's you know uh, whatever whatever your favorite um, form of puzzle is or learning a new language um, playing music uh, yes. or, or all these kinds of things so all of that together wraps up to being about 40 percent of, of dementia risk and the thing that's important is that um, actually we now understand that pathologies in the brain of things like alzheimer's disease don't come on very suddenly they develop very mm. slowly decades of life so if you want to protect your brain from them, you need to start doing those lifestyle changes as early as possible. Yes. Um, so it's never too late, and it isn't, but it's also never too early to start protecting your brain. So what we're doing at Five Lives is um, we're actually helping people to understand their individual risk for dementia. So they take mm -hmm. a, an assessment that looks at their medical history, um, who they are demographically, and um, asks them about their lifestyle, then tells them, um, not only their risk of, de uh, of developing dementia over the next 10 years, but what uh, in their life that can And then there are um, educational and coaching pieces that um, put people to make those changes that they want to be more active, eat more healthily, and um, those kinds of things. Yes. The thing I like about it as a company is that um, the guys that set up the co-founders, Sylvan and Zav, they'd come from consumer gaming. So they really understand how to um, get people to spend time mm -hmm. on their phone, um, uh, interacting in this, you know, lovely experience that's really interesting, gets people coming back day after day. And they've decided to do that for good and to do that to try and get people to change um, behaviours that are going to support their brain health right. rather than just, you know, supporting the economics of the gaming industry. So I, I really like that about them. There's... there's um, a lot of digital therapeutics out there that are very well designed from a scientific point of view. Mm -hmm. It's not that much fun to take part <laughs> in that. So necessarily, you know, if people don't keep moving, they're not getting a dose of that therapeutic mm -hmm. action. They're not going to make those long-term changes. Um, these guys really come at it from the other point of view, which is, first of all, we've got to engage with people and then we've got to feed them little nuggets of health ingredient that help them to um, change those habits in a, in a yes. long-term way. Yeah, absolutely. And you see that really on the rise with sort of fitness apps and things like Duolingo for language learning and things. They've done a really good job with those sorts of things, some of them, haven't they? And it, it has not just made the app successful, but, you know, hopefully improved people's lives and learning and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a lot of psychology mm. in, uh, in 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 the new world of uh, digital. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And is that something that's available for people currently? Yep. So the Five Lives app is live in the UK. It's a um, approved medical device, so uh, it can only be sold in countries where it's where mm -hmm. it's got approval. Um, the UK is kind of the, the first target market. Um, so uh, it's available on the App Store and um, really useful for anyone that's worried about their risk of design uh, for people who might be with right now. It's really designed for people sort of fifty to seventy maybe who've had the experience of caring from dementia or, you know, who are beginning to notice changes in their own um, uh, memory function or cognitive function yes. and what, um, understand what that means and understand what they can do to, to um, support their brain to remain yeah. as healthy as possible for as long as possible. 
fab. Well, I, I will look into that myself after this. <laughs> and so, Jenny, this theme, I suppose, of of neurological conditions, psychiatric conditions, the the sort of diseases of the brain, I suppose, has been really the the central theme of your career from from what I can see. So I guess to start with, tell us a little bit about why science, why this area of science, why why this career for you? Yeah, I never, it, it, it's funny looking back, I don't know if you experienced this with, with many of your guests, but um, it, it's all a bit of an accident would be the yes. answer. <laughs> um, so Apology at form because I had to take, I think, either psychology, history, or geography, and uh, didn't want to, you know, didn't want to do history or geography again. Mm. Um, really enjoyed it. Had a great teacher who said you should um, think about going on to do a degree in this area. Um, so I did uh, experimental psychology at Oxford. Went straight into a PhD after that uh, in the Department of Psychiatry in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Um, had a wonderful uh, PhD supervisor who made it all go swimmingly, um, which of course is not not necessarily the norm in academia, sure. <laughs> uh, but but really important. And just from there, I think my choices have just been whatever whatever seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, I uh, postdocs for a little bit in the states. Mm-hmm. Um, which did turn me off academia slightly, um, but also and also exposed me to um, industry, um, which is not something that psychology graduates necessarily True, see a lot yeah. of. Um, and um, and then moved moved into industry when I moved back to the to the UK. Um, so it's it's yeah it's it's really all happened by chance. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I spun monument out because it was a research project that rather got out of hand in Cambridge Cognition and needed a <laughs> needed a life of its own, and we needed a CEO. So that ended up being me. So. Yeah, I see. I see. So, so as you said, you went out to to the US, and um, you were at the Broad Institute, if I'm if I'm correct, the, the Broad Institute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, tell us a bit about that, because that must be a great place to to go and conduct research and and learn about what's really going. It on. It was fantastic. Yes. So, um, I was interested in learning about the genetic basis of psychiatric disorders, and um, the Broad, which at the time was um, jointly funded by MIT and Harvard, was kind of a new new up and coming place that was that was has just turned into a real. Um, genetic powerhouse mm-hmm. um it was just when the first GWAS studies were happening so for the first time we were beginning to get something more than single gene hypothesis driven um genetic studies in psychiatry yeah. and we'd seen in other areas other types of disease that um these GWAS studies were hugely powerful and just opened up um new pathways that nobody had understood before were related to that disease um, so I, I I wanted to uh, get a little bit of that that action and ended up in a psychiatric genetics group um, on a, a sort of visiting fellowship for a year. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing year. I learned all kinds of stuff, um, uh, but it was a real eye opener. Having been in this very um, functional uh, group in the UK, um, protected by a wonderful PhD supervisor. Uh, and, you know, I was in Cambridge. Cambridge is quite a competitive place. You meet you sure, meet yeah. plenty of ambitious people. But um, yeah, the kind of Harvard MIT um, uh, w- w- was a whole nother world to me in mm-hmm. terms of amazing people, you know, brilliant place to do science, um, but also exposed me for the first time for kind of lab politics and people arguing about whose name goes where on the paper and right. that kind of thing that just wasn't my idea of, um, of fun or wasn't my idea of what science should be about, really. 
Um, I met a really interesting uh, guy who I'd known as being an NIH professor, and he had just switched to the pharmaceutical industry. And I said to him in my rather naive way, I'm very surprised at you moving to industry. And he said, well, I've just concluded that if you actually want to make a difference to patients' lives, you need to develop drugs. And that means mm. you need to be in the pharmaceutical industry. And, um, you know, he's absolutely right. And that's that was really what caused me to uh, to switch to to industrial science. You know? Yes. Um, yeah. And so you went on to, to join Cambridge Cognition uh, following that. So, so I guess tell us a little bit about... Um, what you were doing there and where the company was at. And, and obviously you were there for some time and progressed your career there. Um, tell us a bit about that part of your, your journey. Yes, I joined um, immediately after one year's postdoc in the States. So I was still pretty, um, uh, very inexperienced from a commercial point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew a lot about a specific area as one, one tends to when, you, when you've yes. been doing PhDs and postdocs, but but really nothing about, my, my PhD was in schizophrenia, I really knew nothing about areas outside of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cambridge Cognition at that point was predominantly, um, the, the scientists in Cambridge Cognition were predominantly running a sort of consulting role, so helping pharmaceutical clients um, understand how to use Cambridge Cognition's technology, helping them design clinical trials um, in the best way to to make right. use of that and to help them, you know, learn, learn the most they could about their drug. Um, so it was a real baptism of fire. I didn't know a great deal of pharmacology. I didn't mm-hmm. know anything about working with working with um, um, pharma companies. Um, and I learned loads, uh, yes. you know, um, um, lo- lots of experience. It's, it's a bit of a unique um role because you get to work across many different pharmaceutical companies on many different drugs and different indications simultaneously so mm, re- really see. interesting for people like me that um uh, have, have difficulty concentrating on one thing for a long time <laughs> um so I, I worked my way up through uh, uh becoming increasingly senior in that at cambridge cognition and we also at that time were trying to build up more of a research and development function within the company yes so rather than using the existing technology to um uh help uh pharmaceutical companies we're also interested in how what how how we could use new technologies to better measure brain function um so for example as, as we were describing earlier actually as the advent of smartphones, which has given us a touchscreen in each of our pockets, um, it's also given us uh, a way of um, recording voice, for example, very easily. Right. So we did some projects looking at things like how um, interactions with voice assistants um, can uh, collect pieces of data that, if you process it correctly, can tell you something about the person's mental state. Okay, um, and 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 we know this from the fact that. If you pick up the phone to someone that you know well, you know straight away if they're sleepy or upset mm-hmm. or you know having a having a bad day. You can hear that in the voice. So the voice is a very it's a very complex um, form of data, but it tells you a lot about a person's health and and yes. sedation and and mood and and all these kinds of things. Um, so it's also R and D team to try and um, build up these new ways of measuring cognitive function or brain function, brain health, um, and the, and those two teams. Teams, the sort of pharma consulting one and the and the R and D team, um, have continued to go great guns at Cambridge Cognition. Um, as I said, Monument was one of those R and D projects that that grew out of hand, mm-hmm. um, and by that point, I'd been chief scientist there for um, about five years and was kind of coming to the end of my end of my tenure there in terms of um, uh, 
the, the, the time that I've been there. Yes. Um, so yeah, my my COVID project, um, ably assisted by um, Mark Traherne, who ended up being the chair of Monument, mm -hmm. was to um, try and uh, raise the funding to make um, Monument an independent company. Yeah, and uh, we we did that in twenty twenty one. Yes. So a nice easy time to go and raise money and, and set up. A but it's interesting because I think it was the first time that fundraising wasn't about sort of shaking hands and giving PowerPoint True. presentations in the room. So it, it was an interesting time to 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 raise money in terms of um, uh, the the changing world of that time. Yes, um, things and, we'd never go back to. So as you said, the project started as a research project within Cambridge Cognition. What what were the sort of origins of it, and how did it develop to the point where you thought actually? This has got some legs, and we should do this separately. Yeah, great question. One one of the um, frustrations of working across so many different drug programs had been seeing um, similarities in drug signal. Um, so many pharma companies often have compounds with similar mechanisms of action mm -hmm. that they're testing in similar populations. Uh, you know, at roughly the same time in history. So you'd often see. Um, something, uh, a drug having a particular effect on the brain in one study, and then you'd sort of have the chance to replicate that because working with a different company, you'd, you'd see the same effect um, yes. with a similar drug in a similar patient population. So that kind of convinces you that these are real effects. Um, and what we would often see were drugs that looked really good in the early stages, um, sort of their, their effect being washed out or diluted in phase two and phase three trials, which are of course the most expensive and um, painful to run from, from a, a resource point of view. Sometimes pharma companies would be interested in understanding what, what went wrong in those late stage trials and whether they could have predicted from the early stage data um, that, that the drug wouldn't um, meet the criteria. And so my, my colleague, Kiri Granger in particular, who's, who's now the CSO at Monument, um, did a number of projects looking back in um, data sets from failed trials and looking at um, patterns in those data and whether it whether it could have been predicted earlier. So we'd always known in theory that there are these different types of patients as we were describing earlier. Um, but when you see that in data, then, then it, it starts to become a bit clearer and you think, well, what is it that um, could have told us about these different types of patients early on? Of course, having these digital biomarkers at hand and in these data sets right. that was an obvious place to look and so um we we started with in in the what has turned into our schizophrenia program looking mm -hmm. at whether um a, a particular measure of brain function would um be useful in segregating out patients um that then might be treatable with a particular type of drug and it sort of uh, grew from there and is now one of our um our two lead therapeutic programs yes i see I see. Um, and over the last few years, and, and maybe this is some recency bias on my part, I'm not sure, but it seems like the the sort of the amount of attention being diverted to some of these neurological disorders and, and neurodegenerative disorders particularly is increasing. And, and I think, you know, for a long time, they'd been somewhat... Uh, not shied away from, but somewhat perhaps deprioritized because largely because of the complexity and, and probably because mm. of the, the failure rate that had been seen previously. Um, what do, have you seen? Cause you saw a lot of 
drug development programs and uh, across this um, this disease area. Have you seen particular reasons why that trends occurred, or have the you know are there particular things happening that you think are enabling um, neurodegenerative research or, or neurological research, drug research to to get further than it has done before? Yeah, I think we see it in a number of areas, but Alzheimer's is is probably the most obvious. Right. So, um, company investment in neuroscience has has gone through ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Um, e- you know, even in my career, and when you talk to people that have been working in the field for thirty or forty years, they 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 absolutely say that. Um, for the first time, I think now with some successes in terms of new Alzheimer's drugs coming out, that has really helped. Um, on the commercial side, and it's also helped to um, push this message that I was sort of giving earlier in terms of um, biomarker-led drug development or, or you know, um, stratified medicine drug development. So the, the amount of money that's gone into Alzheimer's research and failed Alzheimer's trials over the last 20 years is absolutely horrific. And only really this year have we seen the first effective disease modifying treatments so treatments that actually slow down the disease come to market yes after 20 years of of, of very big expensive late stage failures and a lot of that some of that is just it took the, the brain is complicated it takes mm-hmm. a long time to understand any any particular disease um but i think we've also learned some lessons now and one is that we um should be measuring something if we're if we're trying to treat it so even 10 years ago the same type of drugs, so drugs that, um, or antibodies, I should say, that um, try and reduce the amount of the amyloid protein, the, mm-hmm. these, these Alzheimer's plaques in the brain. There were some of those in trials quite a long time ago, but actually when we look back now, because we didn't measure whether individual people had amyloid in the brain, we right. found that you know a lot of the people that were in those trials um, for drugs to take amyloid out of the brain didn't have any in the brain in the first okay. place. Okay. That was because we didn't we didn't know how to measure it. We were using clinical t- criteria that says if you're a person over a certain age with a certain number of symptoms and you seem to have a problem with your memory, well, it's probably Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. What we do now and and where it really changed for for um, those successful drugs is we actually measure whether there's amyloid. We can measure it in your spinal fluid or we can put you in a brain scanner and measure whether there's amyloid in your brain. And only if there's amyloid in the brain is it likely that removing it is going to have a good um, effect right, on your yes. on, on your symptoms. So kind of um, uh, approach has has now won the day. It's it's mm-hmm. clear that. Um, we are. We will better, better develop drugs. We'll have a better chance of developing drugs if we know what we're measuring and if the drug is targeting that thing um, yes. at, at an individual patient level. Um, uh, uh, these are huge. These are areas of huge unmet medical need. Right, the, the number of pe- people that might be suitable for that Alzheimer's drug, the number of people whose lives could be helped by better drugs in psychiatry are absolutely enormous. So they've always been commercially attractive areas to pharmaceutical companies it's just been really difficult and if we're now Mm. starting to have the tools and methodologies that mean that it's more likely to be successful i think we'll continue to see a lot of investment in this area yeah well i hope so um and and thinking about from a career point of view jenny and your your journey through your career um i a few things that i was interested to dig more into so um you you moved recently then from a from a position as chief scientific officer of a, a pretty large mature company um and and working in 
um, partnership with other companies to being the the chief executive of a, a much smaller biotech company. Uh, how's that transition going? How has it been? What what have been the differences? You know, what t- tell me a bit about um, what you've seen over the last year or so in doing that. Well, I, I love it. Is the short answer. <laughs> um, in part because I was so fortunate just to take my team with me essentially right. when, when when we spun out. So there haven't been a lot of the kind of growing pains of finding the right people and getting the right people in these positions. We we my, my co-founders were um, colleagues at Cambridge Cognition and had been working on the same project for, mm-hmm. for a long time. So that's definitely smoothed the path enormously. Um, it also, because it happened sort of throughout the COVID era, um that has made the switch from going into an office and having colleagues around to working remotely from our yes. homes we're, we're essentially a virtual uh, company we're all home-based um so that's made that switch but well, it certainly normalized it because everyone was doing was doing it at, at the same time um so in in general i've absolutely loved the that, that experience the bits that are tough are um the bits of being a founder and and responsible for my financial well-being of the mm-hmm. company that i that i didn't have before so you know fundraising is absolutely the 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 core um job of the ceo in 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 in, in small companies like this and um it, it's a tough time to be fundraising of course right. everyone i know that is is doing so um says the same thing so that's been the biggest learning curve um fundraising and and board interactions i've never been on a board before i didn't know I what boards do really um and now i'm i'm responsible to one and, and you know run, run one once a month so th- th- those have been big learning curves um but the uh, the team and the day job and the culture has been um, an absolute joy. So, mm-hmm. um, and and the science has been going really well, which is you know not always the case. No, <laughs> we're very lucky in respect. No, absolutely. And and I suppose thinking about your career as a whole, um, you've obviously made several transitions through your career from um, being in academia to moving into industry, from being a researcher to taking on leadership responsibilities to to an executive role. Uh, and and as we just talked about into the CEO position um I appreciate I'm asking you to distill a long period of time into into a few sentences <laughs> but, um, if there were things from a career point of view that you feel you've particularly learned or that have been particularly important in your development what, what are what are the things that you would point to there that that you might pass on as advice I think the biggest thing I try and say to sort of young young scientists or junior scientists, particularly people, I often come across people who are finishing up their PhD and not sure what, where to go next. And I think because PhDs happen in an academic environment, and so your role models in that environment are academics, they're mm-hmm. people who have succeeded at becoming a career academic. And so I think it's incredibly difficult to conceive that just because you could do that, because you might be good enough to do that, does not mean that that is what you should do and what would make you happiest and how you want to spend your life. So right. I, I I hope it's changed now because I think it, it is more permeable. The wars between academia and industry get, get ever more permeable. Mm-hmm. But certainly when I left um, from a postdoc and went into industry, I felt a lot of scorn from people in academia along the lines of, but you're really quite good. Why would you want to right. to do that? And and the reality is there are fantastic scientists in industry as well. You don't know about them because the job of an industry scientist is not to 
promote their own career, build their own career, get their names on papers, um, you know, have a lab, the so-and-so lab. Mm-hmm. That that that's not how it works in 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 industry. It's absolutely a team sport. And a successful career in industry means that something has happened in the world that wasn't there before. That you know, right. a drug yes. was, was was approved or something like that. So that you know, you completely different um, culture and working environment, but that still needs a, a brilliant scientists to come into it. So I think that's that the, the biggest challenge for people who have grown up in academia is understanding whether that very different way of doing science is likely to suit them or not and i don't mm-hmm. know how people ever find out other than by <laughs> but by jumping or you know maybe maybe people that have been so lucky as to work in a you know how to do a sandwich course or get get yes. some kind of work experience outside of academia um but yeah i think that's the that's the one thing i would say is there are lots of ways to use a science degree or a phd usefully in the world so if you don't enjoy the particular way that it's used in mm-hmm. in academic life there are all kinds of you know other other useful things you can do with that. Yes, yeah, and I think as you as you mentioned earlier, sometimes it's difficult to tell before trying it, but but also the the door the door the other way is not quite as closed as it perhaps was in previous years. I think you're right. People, it's not still the norm, but um, people do go back and forth a little bit more, and yeah. there seems to be the the two sides do seem to be coming closer together in some places. So. I guess that that finality of the decision to move into industry is perhaps a little less severe than it than it was. So you can go. Yeah, I think that. so. I think there's also a lot more opportunity to collaborate with mm-hmm. industry. So, you know, the academics, most academics will at some point in their career have the opportunity to get a taste of industry through yes. through collaboration. You 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 may or may not like it, but but it I think it it gives um it gives both. Uh, makes that membrane less permeable, and uh, if if you do ever want to go back, and also gives gives young scientists the opportunity to try and get some exposure um, to to um, industry science and see whether that that might be something that they um, that they like to do. Yeah, absolutely. And and going back to Monument, um, tell us a little bit about what's next. What's happening over the next six twelve months? that's an interesting question we um we're in fundraising period so essentially the um we uh, spun out with seed funding and Mm -hmm. have now hit all the milestones that that paid for so two lead programs are ready to go into clinical trials and um awaiting fundraising on that so my job at the moment is to catalyze that um fundraising into happening uh which i'm very hopeful will happen in the in in the next six months yes um we we have had um some news that uh we're going to be included in a um very large uh grant funded um study that should start next year um, which will uh, really accelerate one of our drug development programs. It's a schizophrenia drug development program. Mm-hmm. So that's great. That gives us um, a, a, a really big um, endorsement of our science uh, and also a way of um, making our drug development plans happen more quickly but, than they would otherwise. Yes. Um, but that's uh, that's brand new news. So I'm, a lot of my time at the moment is figuring out how we can um, ensure that that happens as quickly as possible and 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 um, use that to help catalyze the fundraising process. Yeah. Um, so it's all it's all good things but uh there's a there's a few shifting parts at the moment which um i'm sure 
uh, it's the norm for a CEO, right? That's, yeah. that's the job <laughs> these days. That's it. You know, if you're if you're being successful in doing what you're doing, then there's there's going to be the next step to take, right? And and uh, that's always exciting. But um, but it sounds like really positive progress. And yeah, absolutely, it's um, it's it's going very well at the moment. Yeah. Well, Jenny, it's a fascinating project that you have there. It's, it's uh, something that seems to be making real progress and, and, as you said, will have a real impact. And we wish you the best of luck with the raise and beyond, and uh, we will be keeping an eye on it. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Tom. It's been a really, real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for listening. Careers in Discovery is sponsored by Singular, helping you to build a brilliant biotech company. Biotech leaders spend far too much time, money, and energy on hiring and people issues. Head to www.singular-biotech.com to learn how you can recruit and engage your team more effectively so you can focus on developing medicines, treating patients, and saving lives. Thank you.